Hallelujah, hallelujah, all we have is Christ. Again, hallelujah, hallelujah, all we have is Christ. The, uh, what's being communicated through that song needs to, it needs to be seared on our hearts. It needs to be seared on our hearts. We need to remember that if Jesus be anything to us, he's got to be everything. If Jesus be anything, he must be everything. Good morning, Woodhaven. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Always grateful to uh, share in the ministry of the word. And uh, before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for your love and your mercy towards us. As the song so effectively communicated, we need you. Certainly we have you, but God, we need you. And we need to know that having you is technically all that we need, all that we will ever need in this life. I pray, God, that you would guide our time today, guide our time this morning. May you be glorified, God, as we work through um, today's, today's sermon, as we work through your word. May you be glorified. May your people here be edified. And may the Lord Jesus be magnified. I pray that in his mighty name. Amen. All right. So this morning we are going to return to a book that uh, I've preached through before. And um, so this is a book that the last time I preached to it, uh, through it, uh, it was mentioned that this is a book that did not make Bible Gateway's top 10 books of the Bible. All right. But uh, this is a book that I plan to just systematically work through throughout the year. Um, so it'll, it'll happen kind of sporadically. Um, but again, I'm going to work through this systematically. And we're going to be in the book of Revelation. And we're going to be dealing specifically with the seven letters to the seven churches and I ended up getting the green light from Nathan, and we thought that, you know what, this would be a pretty dope series to work through, because if you know about, I did say dope, by the way, if you know about the book of Revelation, right, there's a part in Revelation where there's a dragon attempting to eat and devour a pregnant woman, and then it depicts Jesus also, I think that's kind of like interesting, right, but it, but it also depicts Jesus having, he's on a white horse, chapter 19, and he's got a tattoo on his thigh, all right? So for you legalists in here, you're like, no tattoos. No, 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 no. Jesus has got a, he's got a tattoo on his thigh. And he comes to judge and make war with the nations. And I thought, again, this would be a really helpful book for us to work through because the letters in themselves, in and of themselves, uh, for the past 2,000 years, they have challenged, rebuked, informed and shaped the church in a very missional way. And I thought, you know what, it, it, it's, I think it's necessary. I think it, it would be uh, 
only right if we were to work through this. Um, Revelation, the book of Revelation, singular, not plural. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever met, met anyone that says, you know, Revelations. They put an S at the end of it. But the book of Revelation is, it's a letter that is dictated from God to the Apostle John. And remember, John is on the island of Patmos. And John is, is, is writing this, this vision. He's writing what's being dictated uh, by God. And he's writing it to a cluster of churches in Asia Minor. And uh, it's happening within the, the latter part of the first century. And today we're going to look at, if you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at the letter to the church of Ephesus. So again, if you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at, again, the letter to the church in Ephesus. And what's, what's interesting is that we're going to work through some things contextually. Uh, there are the climate that the church is situated in. Um, there's a social or cultural or religious and a political climate that we want to kind of get a flavor for, a taste for, we want to get a grasp of. And that's going to help us really understand um, the weight of the letter, right? It's going to help us understand the weight of the letter. Um, and so let's, let's dive into the letter. Let's go ahead and read it, and then we'll jump into what we're going to cover today. So let's read Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. The letter to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles, and they're not. You found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Verse 7 says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. All right. So obviously we're going to be in this letter and um, just kind of a heads up in terms of where we're going as far as the terrain of the letter. Uh, when, when, as we're working through this letter, we're going to consider uh, roughly five items. And those five items are listed for you and I'll, I'll verbalize them as well. We're going to look at the distinct historical context of each letter. And I know that's very small. We're going to look at the, the self-description of Jesus that's given within the greeting. And that's going to be helpful. 
We're going to look at the, the positive and negative characteristics of this church and the other churches when we dive into it. We'll also look at the exhortation that Jesus gives concerning the church. And then lastly, we're going to look at the application for us today. So let's start with the historical context of Ephesus. And my, my burden during this time, or my, my, my hope, isn't to burden you with information, especially with, with this particular section, but it's helpful. It's helpful. It gives us context. Now, with, with the church in Ephesus, kind of give you the kind of the historical context, um, the gospel advances to the church in Ephesus uh, roughly at the middle of the first century. And if you, if you want to follow me in Acts 18, you can write that in your bulletin. In Acts 18, verses 18 through 22, this is where we see the genesis of the church at Ephesus. Uh, this is a church where we know that Paul spent over two years investing into the believers at Ephesus. And this is also a church where Timothy it was a resident. Timothy was a resident there. And then along with Timothy being a resident, we also know scripture states that John, who's actually pinning this letter to this church, he is intimately acquainted with this church. Ephesus is a, is a city that had a population of roughly a quarter million, um, very similar to maybe possibly a little more than Grand Rapids, a little less than Detroit, maybe comparable to what we have here in the Downriver area. But then along with that, this, this city was known for its political importance. And I want you to just kind of catalog that. Known for its political importance. Now this was a free city, designated as, they were designated as a, as a free city by uh, the Roman Empire. And because of that, they were given the right by Rome to self-govern. And that, you would think that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. Kind of. But they were given the right to self-government. They were also known for their judicial status. And then lastly, this is a city that, that flourished as an important commercial and export center for Asia. This is a city that, because they were aligning with the Roman Empire, they, were, they, they celebrated in everything that came with Rome. We call that the imperial cult. All right. They, they celebrated the Caesars, all of the festivities. They, they embraced all of that. And along with that, they uh, kind of last bit of historical background. The Temple of Artemis, just by show of hands, who, who's familiar with the Temple of Artemis? Yeah, yeah. The Temple of Artemis was situated in Ephesus and uh, the Temple of Artemis was likely the size of two football fields. Go Patriots, by the way. Go Patriots. But it was, like, it was the size of two football fields, uh, but it was, it was the main religious attraction in Rome. But again, I want to give you all that, that just the lay of the terrain there because it's helpful as we work through the letter. Let's look at verse 1. We're going to look at the self-description of Jesus because there's, there's a greeting there. And it begins, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. 
And it's kind of interesting that this, this letter is written, it's written to an angel. And while, you know, you kind of do some research on this, there are three major positions that scholars take. And I'm not going to press into that right now. But if you want to talk with me afterwards, certainly we can talk about that. But the main thing when we see to the angel, you can circle that. When you see that, what that's speaking to is just, it's, it's, a, it's a courier who's, who's carrying the message to the church. Now, is that, church, is, is that angel an actual physical angel? There are some who believe that. Is it a representative? There's some who believe that. But it is an individual who is actually taking the message to the church. And they're taking it to the church because this message is for the church, and it comes from the risen Jesus, the risen Christ. And he's the one, if we continue reading in verse 1, he's doing something. There's some actions there. He is holding the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. I'm going to do a little quick Bible study really quick. Go to chapter 1, and I want you to look at verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20 helps us. It's kind of like a legend in a sense. Uh, It helps to reveal the lampstands and the stars. The lampstands are the seven churches, and the stars are the angels. And consider, though, again, the action that's taking place. With the lampstand and the stars, he holds the angels. He's, he's in control. He walks among the, amongst the lampstands. And with, with these two actions that are taking place, make sure that comes up. Christ holding and him walking amongst the lampstands, holding the stars. The effect is to give a picture of Jesus who is present and in the very midst of these churches. We need to know that today. Jesus is present and in the very midst of these churches. And he is intimately concerned about the circumstances, both spiritually, but also the religious, the political, and everything else that came came along with it. He's concerned about that. And Jesus cares. You don't get anything from this message today. Write at the top, of, the top of your bulletin that Jesus cares. Jesus cares. So we have the self-description of Jesus, of the risen Lord, in verse 1. Now let's move to the critiques. Just by show of hand, who loves being critiqued? Yeah, that's right, that's right. You know what's so interesting about the critiques uh, it begins in verses, verse 2, and it works its way through verse 6. And the critiques are actually sandwiched, all right? Uh, and, and, and I know there, there are many parents in the room today. So parents, if you want to be biblical, like when you're critiquing your kids, sandwich it, right? Sandwich it. But the critique in and of itself, again, it's sandwiched. And what we have is a positive with verses 2 and 3. Then we have a negative critique in verse 4, but then it follows up with another positive critique in verse 6. So here's the the first critique that Jesus gives, and it's a a robust commendation to the church of Ephesus, 
All right? And with this commendation, you would think if the letter stopped there, they would pat themselves on the back. But it is a robust commendation. He says, your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. He says, I know your works. I know your toil. I know those things and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. This is a church that has toiled under the point of exhaustion and born patiently within, within the culture that they're situated in, a culture that is at odds with their, their efforts and their goals. They have, they have worked tirelessly. They, they, got their, they got their Jude 3 on, right? They were contending for the faith in that culture. Keep reading in verse 2. It says that not only are uh, their, their overall manner of life should be commended and their toil and their patient endurance, but also they have tested doctrine. They've tested doctrine. This is a church that's getting it in theologically. All right? Some of you guys are like, what does he mean by getting it in theologically? <laughs> this is a church that is, is, is dialed in. Right? They've tested the doctrine of false apostles. And these false apostles, they, they were an issue because of where Ephesus was, was situated. And these false apostles, their, their intent was to harm and deceive the flock of God. They wanted to pimp the flock of God. They wanted to introduce to the flock of God another Jesus, another gospel. But Ephesus, Ephesus, Ephesus contended for the faith. We also see in verse 6 that not only was this like that was a, a, a fight on the front of the false apostles, but also they were contending against the Nicolaitans. And what we know about the, the Nicolaitans are, it's, this, is a, this is a movement that's really difficult to define uh, in terms of the origin of it. Is it talking about an individual or is it talking about an ideology? But it's a, it's a, it's a movement that's difficult to find, but we do see this term show up in other letters. And this term, the Nicolaitans, it's connected to uh, Balaam and Jezebel. All right? But we know it's an issue, enough of an issue where the church in Ephesus had to contend. Again, this is a, a robust commendation that this church is receiving from Jesus. They should pat themselves on the back, but keep reading the letter because Jesus has a rebuke. And honestly, this is a church, if you and I are honest, we, we, would, we would attend this church. We would totally attend the church at Ephesus. We would be part of the contending that's taking place. But don't stop there. The letter keeps going. We'll look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. It's, it's almost as if Jesus goes like earth, wind, and fire on them. Right? Some of you are like, okay, earth, wind, and fire. Where are you going with that? After the love is gone. Now, some of you, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you all, I heard somebody out there. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. After the love is gone. 
So Jesus goes earth, wind, and fire on them. And he says, look, you've abandoned the love you had at first. Now, when we consider, like, so what is the love that they had at first? But also, what are the things that they did at first that they're no longer doing? So those are two questions to consider as we're working through this. What was the love that they had at first? And what were they doing that they're no longer doing? They do at first that they're no longer, no longer doing. And I want you to uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 18. And this is going to be helpful. And we're not going to read through all of it. We're going to take an approach to reading called waterfalling. Right? We're going to waterfall. I'm going to raise your hand if you've heard of skimming. Heard of skimming? Yeah, we're not going to skim. Right? But we're going to waterfall it. Okay, we're going to waterfall it. So just make sure you're able to follow me. Um, Acts chapter 18, verse 18 specifically. You're, you're, within your Bible, it says, Paul returns to Antioch. And we're going to waterfall this. Because this, this is going to be helpful because we need to know, well, what exactly did they abandon? The love that they had at first. Okay. And we're just going to unpack this, right? So we, we've got Paul. He's in, he's, he um, connects with Pr- Priscilla and Aquila. He leaves them in Ephesus. And I'm kind of paraphrasing this so we can waterfall this through. So make sure you're, going, you're, you're following along. He leaves them in, in, in Ephesus. Uh, they connect with, uh, what's the brother's name? Uh, Apollos. He was a native of Alexandria. Alexandria is situated in Egypt. Which continent is Egypt in? On? Africa. That's right. He's, it's a continent within Africa. But they connect with a brother named Apollos. They worship, connect, and serve with him. Some of you caught that. Others did not, and that's okay. Paul comes to Ephesus in chapter 19. He invests in a new group of believers. I call them youngins. He invests in some youngins in the faith. And this is a a group, uh, a new group of believers uh, that he's investing in, and this group grows. He's reasoning within the synagogue and other places as well. And he continues to pour into the lives of these new believers. Keep waterfalling it. He pours into the lives of these believers thousands of hours, more than two years. And then he performs miracles. And the whole idea behind the miracles is to to bring validity to the message of the gospel. And then there's an incident, keep reading, Um, chapter 19, verse 13, 13 through 16. We're waterfalling it. There's an incident with some guys known as the seven sons of Sceva. Right? They saw what Paul was doing. They were like, you know what, man, we want to do that. We want to, we want to do the miracles. We want to rob God of his glory. So they attempt to do that. And guess what? They fail miserably. Right? Um, <laughs> they receive a beatdown. If you're, if you're reading this, they literally receive a beatdown to the extent that they went into the fight with clothes on and they left missing a couple of items. That is a beatdown. I know that doesn't, say, that, doesn't, that doesn't say that in your text, but that's a beatdown. If you go into a fight with clothes and you leave the fight with, without a shoe and a shirt, you just got beat down. These guys, <laughs> some of you are getting this, these guys received a beatdown. But we want to look specifically in chapter 19 
at verses 17 through 20. And I'm going to read this. After this major smackdown happens, verse 17 says, And this became known to all the residents in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. Think about that. Wait a second. They just received a beatdown, and then worship breaks out. It, it, seriously, right? MMA just happened, and then there's worship that followed. And then verse 19, verse 18 says, also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging of their practices. Gotta love that. And a number of those who had practiced magic, magic arts brought their books together. They burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it that it, that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And again, this is, this is helpful for us because when we think about what happened after the beatdown, what happens is that there's this, 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 this awe that comes upon the believers. This awe. Now, I know it says that there's fear. Fear means it awe. They were in awe of the majesty, the glory, and the goodness of God. They were captivated by it. They were gripped by it. Worship happened. And here's the point, as far as, you know, them abandoning their first love. When Jesus turned back to Revelations 2, Revelation 2, I just put an S on it. I did. I know you all heard that. Don't judge me. <laughs> But when Jesus says, you have abandoned your first love, he's talking about that incident. We've got to keep that incident in mind. And this isn't, and I know we've understood this particular section as they weren't moral enough. This is not a call to become more moral. To do more, it's, it's actually not saying that. Because the love that they had at first, has everything to do with being gripped by and captivated with the glory and the majesty, the goodness, and the gospel. All right? And I'm going to unpack that a little bit. This church, when we consider what they were just commended in, this church is what we would call an independent, fundamental Baptist church. Think about it. They're doing a lot of good things. Or, I, was, I use a different designation, different terminology. There are independent, fundamental, correct me if I'm wrong, Bible church? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're doing a lot of good things. But Jesus has a rebuke for this church. They're, they're, they're hosting Awanas. They've got youth group. They, they've got people that are coming Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings. They ought to hold a Sunday evening service. They, they've got people that are coming Wednesday nights. They're, they've got structures in place. They've got good doctrine as well. But this rebuke has everything to do, I want to put it up here, with them recapturing the type of intensity and fervor in their love for God that would cause them to cast their livelihood in the flames. But it doesn't stop there. 
This is an intensity and love for God that would cause them, think about what they did in Acts 19, to abandon all false ways. And in doing so out of joy, to trade that for the surpassing worth of being found in Christ Jesus their Lord. That's what we're getting at. This is not a commendation to be more loving, to like do certain things. This is actually a commendation to love God with greater fervor and intensity. Now ask yourself this question. Are you loving God with maximum fervor and intensity? Are, 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 are you in that lane? Are, are you doing that? When I was working through this, I went to my wife and I said, babe, I, this is going to be tough because I'm that guy. I'm that guy who relies on structures. I want to kind of have some transparency here. I rely on structures and what I know and my, the, my theological formation. And I, and, I, and I rely on that. And I think that's synonymous with love for Jesus. It's not. It's helpful in terms of facilitating greater love, cultivating greater love. But it's, it's not. Let me... Let me let me chop it up in this way. If you were to go to a restaurant and you have a menu in front of you, let's say it's you and me, Ron, since you're, near, you're, the, you're closest to me. Ron and I, we're at uh, Christoph's. That's right around the corner. Is it Christoph's? Okay, Christoph's. All right. We're, we're about to order. And I say to Ron, hey, man, you know, what do you think about this? Uh, well, actually, he says to me because he's been here longer. Right? Marcel, what do you think about this menu? And I go, man, this menu looks great. You know, their pancakes and their French toast and the chicken tenders. Oh, man. Wow. And he says, Marcel, are you ready to order? And I go, you know what? You know what, Ron? I think I'm full. Ron would probably say, wait a second, Marcel, we came here because you're hungry. And, you know, we wanted to sit down. We wanted to eat. Right? The point isn't to like come and look at the menu and be wild by the menu and stop there. The point is to be wild by the menu and then order the what? The food. And to eat the food and to be satisfied by the food and to be in love with how it just permeates that palate, right? And how it fills my gut. And that's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about. And this is a weighty reminder for us because this is dealing with our affections being rightly placed on who Jesus is. Our affections being, being rightly placed on him. Because we run the risk of, in our, in our doing, to be part of church activities and to do religious things, but we run the risk of displeasing God because we're not, we don't have our affections rightly placed on him. And, I, and I, I raise my hand because I, I, I'm that. I'm that. And again, this is weighty because, kind of unpack it a little more, we live during a time where there's, and praise God that there's access to so many, so many theologically sound writers. Praise God for the Puritans. Praise God for, and hear anybody say amen to that. Praise God for the Puritans, right? 
Uh, praise God for, for Charlie Spurge. Praise God for Johnny Pipe. Praise God for Thabiti Anibwile. Praise God for Vodi Bakum. But here's the thing. If, we're, if, if, we missed, if we missed the point that our, the, the, our knowledge of theology is technically like, all of that is good, but it has to cultivate and grow intimate affection for the one that all of this is about. Does that make sense? It's gotta, it's gotta grow affections for Jesus. I like how Robert Smith says, he says it in his book, uh, Doctrine That Dances. He says, preacher, doctrine is a sign that points beyond itself to Jesus. You need to have right doctrine. <laughs> oh, yes, you do. Right. But it points beyond itself to Christ. And some of us, if we're honest, we're, we're in love with the Asians and the ologies, but you're not in love with Jesus. And I say that because that's where I was. Be in love with Jesus. Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, he says, the intensity of your love for me needs to surpass your love for anything else. And this is about family having a, a fervor for God that is able to be sensed and experienced by those in our midst and around us. There's so much more I want to say there, but let's just move on to verse 5. We've got, we've got the exhortation in verse 5. Let's move to that. Christ says to the church of Ephesus, remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Right? Remember the fervor that you had for me prior, the intensity of your love for me. Remember that. In light of where you are, here's what you need to do. Repent and do the work that you did at first. If not... I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Now, I do want to say this. This, this isn't like, we're not, we're, he's not saying we're going to lose our salvation. That's not what it's saying, right? Because it would, that's not what it's saying, right? That's why good doctrine helps you to understand. We can't lose our salvation, right? We can't undo what he's already done. But what he's communicating to this church is that if you're not able to regain the intensity and fervor of your love for God, he's going to remove the lampstand from its place. I mean, unpack it a little more. They stand to lose, Ephesus stands to lose the effectiveness of their gospel witness in the culture. That's what they stand to lose, the effectiveness of their gospel witness in the culture. And sadly, this is happening in many of our contemporary churches. The effectiveness of the gospel witness within the culture, done. Lost. I want you to think about it this way. A lampstand needs a light bulb in order to like, bring about light and darkness. If a lampstand does not have a light bulb, then that lampstand is useless. It's ineffective. It's unnecessary. And I believe what you, what you and I need, and specifically what, what, what the Lord is calling the church of Ephesus to, is to the fact that we need Christ burning hot in our hearts. We need the light of the gospel 
Seriously, we need the light of the gospel of God to burn within us. Here's the conclusion. The conclusion to the letter. Oh, let me go back. Not yet. All right, there we go. The conclusion to the letter. Uh, we've got this call to listen in verse 7. I just want to read all of verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. We've got this prophetic warning that's working itself out. And within this prophetic warning, they and we, we need to open our mind and heart to kingdom truths. We need to open our mind and heart to kingdom truths. We need to hear and obey. But in our hearing and our obeying, it's not, oh, I'm going to obey. No, it's by the Spirit of God. Right? It's by the Spirit of God that we can obey. And I, just really quickly, in verse 7, if you look within the text, we've got obey and then we have conquerors. It says, right, to, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. I love this little quote by uh, Grant Osborne in dealing with this whole idea of conquerors and obedience. He says, as conquerors, never forget this, our victory, if we're going to have any victory in the Christian life, you need to remember this. Our victory is a participation in his victory. Think about that. Any victory that we have, you name it. It's because we participate in what Christ has done for us. And to be a conqueror demands faithfulness and a day-by-day -day walk with God and dependence on his strength. I'm going to go ahead and end this. I've gotten, got, I've gotten, a, gotten a nod from, from Dick. I'm just kidding, Dick. He didn't give me a nod. didn't give me a nod, but we're going to go ahead and end this because uh, we want to make sure that we're using our time as best we can. This, this, this letter is a message from Jesus to the church of Ephesus, and what's being zeroed in on is the danger of leaving your first love and finding your passion in something else other than Christ and his kingdom. There's danger in that. And if some of you, if you're like me, you, 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 you may be a bit jaded as to how close that danger lies. You may be a bit jaded. And if you are, that, that's it's all right, because there's hope, because Jesus tells us something that we need to do if we've recognized this. And we're going to get to that. But also, as we end, this is an exhortation to love God with, with greater fervor and intensity. And again, we're going to get to what Jesus tells us to do. And obviously, we already covered it, but I just want to reiterate it again. I'm going to end with this question. Does the intensity of your love for God surpass your love for anything else? Does the intensity of your love for God surpass your love for anything? You just feel that with whatever for anything else, for anything else. And I, just going back to what I stated previously in terms of if you've realized that your intensity and love for God has waned and that 
you are prone to to be jaded in your thinking in terms of like where you are spiritually, right? Where you are within your affections, Christ commands us to, to repent and to look to him. We need to repent. It's a means of grace. Confess. And we need to look to Jesus. We need to refan the flame uh, by feasting on the person and work of Christ. We need to appropriate the grace that he gives us through his word. We need to appropriate the grace that he gives us, the fellowship of his people. We need to confess. I want to say this, and then we're going to close our time. If you're here and you have no desire for Jesus, you're not struggling. You're not in the category of struggling through this like the church of Ephesus, at Ephesus. No, but you're an individual. You just don't have a desire for Jesus at all. You've been... Uh, socialize into Christian activities. You're here because your mom goes here or your father goes here. But if you have no desire and no love for the things of God, no love. And I'm not talking about, oh, you know, I had, you know, I only read my Bible three times. No, it's like, no, I don't want to hear what the Bible has to say. I don't want to bend, I don't want to bow the knee to Jesus. If that is you, Jesus commands that you do something as well. He commands that you confess it. He commands that you repent and turn to him. If that's you, you're dead in your sins. You're an enemy of God and you're condemned. You're condemned. And if that's you, I would implore you, again, to look to Jesus. Look to what he's accomplished for you on the cross, like as it states it in his word, because he accomplishes something for you and for me that we can never accomplish for ourselves. And that's reconciling us to a holy God and bringing us into his family. That was heavy. And I want to give you some time before we pray, maybe just 15 seconds, to just say la pause before we go into the next thing. Because I know we've got a next thing in mind. But I just want to give you some time to just digest all of that. Now, obviously, 15 seconds isn't going to be enough time, but I want to go in the right direction with this. So I just want to give you some time um, before I pray. And we're just going to still ourselves before the Lord. Um, so let's just still ourselves. Though the musicians, you can come forward. And I'll, I'll begin praying in about 15 seconds, but musicians, you can come forward. Actually, musicians are not coming forward because we have a different, um, we have a different format today. But let's take about 15 seconds just to still our hearts and just to think about what was just communicated as it pertains to the intensity and, our, uh, the intensity and fervor of our love for Jesus and whether or not it's, it's waned. So let's take some time to do that, and then we'll pray, and uh, we'll get to the next thing. Father, that was a lot. So much needed to be said. So much was said during that time. And God, I, I just pray that in all that was said,
I pray that you, in your way, would open our minds, God, and our hearts to, to your truth. Truth of the matter is we don't love you as we should. I know we come here and we put on face and we, we dress nice, we look nice, and we're all jazzed up, but we don't love you as we should. There is a, a hole in our holiness. We leak and we need to be reminded of truth. But God, we, we, truly, we truly desire to love you more. We pray, God, that as we're considering what was communicated, I pray, God, that you would ignite a passion within us where the gospel would burn hot in our hearts and it would cause us out of joy to trade whatever idol we hold on to, whatever identity we hold on to, to trade it for the surpassing worth of being found in your son Jesus. I pray, God, that increased fervor within this body would take place, increased fervor for you. And I pray, God, that it would be sensed and experienced by those in our midst, but also those that are around us in our communities, at our jobs, within our marriages, within our personal relationships. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.